Welcome to the Glovis Show. Here's your host, Antonio Chavez Borelli. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Glovis Show. My name is Antonio Chavez Borelli. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Bill Flynn. With more than 30 years of experience working for and advising hundreds of companies, including 10 startups in various executive and leadership positions, Bill Flynn has had a long track record of success, five successful outcomes, two IPOs, and seven acquisitions, including a turnaround during the 2008 financial crisis. He has been a VP of sales eight times, twice a CMO, and once the GM of a division of a $100 million IT services company until he pivoted to becoming a business growth coach. His company, Catalyst Growth Advisors, helps leaders take the guesswork out of growth by helping them confidently predicting the future. You can connect with Bill through LinkedIn, Twitter, his website, or bill at catalystgrowthadvisors.com. Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, Antonio. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. Thank you for your time. Can you please tell me a little bit more about how you started out, um, a bit about where you're from and what your childhood was like? Sure. Uh, so I grew up in a town called Methuen, Massachusetts. It is uh, just on the New Hampshire border in what's called the Merrimack Valley, uh, the Merrimack River, which is a river that flows um, down from Canada, basically. Um, pretty um, sort of lower middle income upbringing. My dad was a pipe fitter, um, refrigeration guy, HVAC guy, um, and my mother was a teacher. Um, so I went to high school there, uh, you know, did relatively well, played a lot of sports. Uh, since this is a sports show, I actually played soccer, hockey, and tennis uh, and lettered in all of them uh, my junior and senior year. Um, and then I went on to college to play hockey and tennis. Actually, I played tennis through my entire college uh, career. Hockey and tennis are not usually typically go together, but, you know, whatever. I've always been a strange dude. Um, and then I um, sort of decided I wanted to um, figure out what I want to do with my life. And I actually worked with my uncle who introduced me to a bunch of companies and I started doing high tech companies. And that's sort of started my world of high tech. And I did uh, along the way, I ended up doing 10 startups over about 25 years. Uh, and uh, at one point I was five for six, which is a decent track record since nine out of 10 startups fail. Uh, so, uh, so that was pretty good, but I ended up being five for 10. The last four were not the greatest. And then in the last five or six years, I became a coach um, for lack of a better term. I'm actually much more of a teacher than a coach. Uh, so I teach a growth framework to my clients, help them grow a healthy and thriving business. So that's my quick and dirty um, history there. Great. Thanks. So please share a defining moment in your twenties. You kind of touched on it. You reached out to your uncle. You started um, consulting with him about these tech companies. Was that a defining moment for you that helped you propel you onto your, on your path of business or is there another defining moment? Yeah. Um, so there are probably, so I've sort of had two arcs to my career. Um, so there really are two defining moments. Um, one was I worked for a company called Dragon Systems a long time ago. I think I was in my late twenties. Uh, Dragon Systems was basically the precursor to Siri. Uh, they were a speech recognition company, and uh, a number of the folks, uh, researchers who worked there, uh, went on to work at Apple and helped to develop Siri. Um, 
so that was really interesting. I, I really um, enjoyed the startup feel, uh, really sort of starting an industry. This was 1991. So this was a long time ago. Um, speech recognition is sort of just almost everywhere now, but th then it was in very small places. So I really enjoyed sort of being on the cutting edge of that stuff. So I was in, that helped me to propel me to um, be in e-commerce in 1995. And since the World Wide Web was born in 1994, e-commerce in 95 was pretty new as well. Uh, and I did affiliate marketing um, in 98, which was one of the first companies to do that. So uh, that was sort of my, that was one defining moment. The other was uh, between startup five and six, I basically became a coach. Uh, I worked for a company, an email hosting company before Gmail and, and Office 365 were a thing uh, or were things. Uh, I had the opportunity to um, run an organization that did that after an acquisition where I helped um, get acquired. And uh, we had a, a catastrophic event. The entire technical infrastructure fell apart. Um, you're relatively young. Um, there was a time when Amazon Web Services did not exist. Uh, and you had to either build your own data center or rent from someone else. And that's what we did. We basically rented a data center, but we ran it ourselves. Um, so unfortunately, we built it in a way that didn't work when volume got too, too great. And actually, my first day, my first day as general manager, the entire tech, technical infrastructure collapsed on itself, and we didn't deliver email to anyone uh, for two and a half days. So you can imagine not getting email or Snapchat or whatever for two and a half days, right? That's uh, that would not be a good experience, and, and and our customers were not happy. We lost about a thousand in about in about a week, and then I went around saving lots of other ones as well for a while. But uh, I had to figure out what to do. And so what I did is I said, okay, you know, I, I read a bunch of books. I had a really few good CEOs that I'd work with. So I cobbled together this little system and it worked great. You know, we, we turned the business around. We actually doubled in size in two years. Um, we, uh, uh, I did not lose one employee. It was 2008. So, you know, not a lot of people were leaving their jobs anyway, because there weren't a lot of jobs to go to, but they were getting yelled at on a regular basis. They certainly could have gone other places. Um, and, but I learned um, that, you know, having this sort of systematic feel to a business really made a difference. Uh, and I sort of tucked that away. I did four more startups after that. But then in 2015, I, I, when I decided, you know, did I want to do an 11th or do something else? Um, that came back and said, I want to try to do that. So that really was a defining moment. January 4th, 2009. I like to describe it as the worst and the best day of my life. That's interesting. And you talk a lot in your book about how leaders, especially in a business setting, can't rely on effort and luck and timing and uh, will to achieve success. So clearly those skills weren't useful in that 2008, 2009 period just because the, of the volatility. So what do you say they should instead rely on instead of those skills? Yeah, so those are great, especially when you're small, right? If you're, I mean, you've got a you've got a fledgling business, you gotta you gotta hustle, right? You gotta do a lot of different things and play a lot of different roles. But eventually, if the business starts to 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 grow, um, and uh, and sort of has some predictability to it, and it's, it's in a larger market, your job as the head of the company is to is to remove yourself from running the day to day and doing the things because your job is really to predict the future, and the only way to predict the future is to actually relax your brain. You know, um, uh, the future is a creation event, um, right? Is is when you when you're doing that, when you're predicting the future, it's 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 creating a future. It's it's a design model, and that's 
insight and innovation. Um, so I always ask this of folks, Antonio, when you get your best ideas, what are you doing? Do you recall? I'm usually either in the shower or super yep. relaxed or maybe on a run or something. Exactly. And, That's the shower and, is the most popular answer yeah. I've ever on on a bike ride. So what you're doing is you're not actually thinking very much. You're just, everything is on automatic and your brain is relaxed. And that's when insights happen. Insight is, is literally a physical change in your brain where two, two things that are, are, are loosely connected or near each other to physically connect in your brain. That's when you get the, the insight. When they, when they actually connect is when you get the insight. It's called the edge effect. It's a sort of loosely, um, uh, loosely connected brains. Things, data that you might've picked up, you didn't even know you picked up, all of a sudden become fused together. Uh, and that's really what you need to do as a leader. So you can't, you can't do and think at the same time, right? There's a, there's a great and sort of funny video where this guy who says he can absolutely multitask. So they say, great, put, they put him in a car and they, they put him through this sort of simple obstacle course. All he has to do is navigate the cones, et cetera. And then he's on the phone. And while he's on the phone, he gets a call and he has to do somewhat complex math, something that he would have to really think hard about. Uh, and you can imagine what happens next. He starts to do the math. He runs over the cones. You know, he's going up the course because you can't do those two things at once. Your brain just isn't designed to do that, uh, especially men. We're not, we're pretty single-minded as it is anyway. Um, so what you need to do is fire yourself from the day to day. And your job is really to create direction and environment or atmosphere, right? So if you're a leader, uh, I've been studying leaders for a long time and, and I have a bit of a, of a, controversial view of, of, of leadership. I don't actually think leadership is something that we can, we can recreate. Leadership is very subjective. Steve Jobs is a very different leader than is uh, Herb Keller who runs Southwest who are, or um, uh, uh, Alan Mulally who ran Boeing and Ford or Ellison who ran Oracle. They're all very different and they apply their uniqueness to what they do and that's what made them great leaders. Um, uh, to me, there are only two, really two or three things that, great, that leaders have that are the same. One that they all have is they have followers. Uh, you can't declare yourself a leader. People say, I choose you as my leader. Um, so it's a volunteer, they volunteer themselves to you. There's something about you or what you're doing that they want to help you do. And, and they say, I, I want to follow Antonio to, to, to you know, to, to change the, the world of soccer gloves or whatever it is. Right. Um, and so in order to do that, you have to tell them where you're going, right? What does it look like when we've done what we want to do? And that's sort of this vision or direction that you have. And then you have to create an environment where they can help you, right? Give them autonomy, give them certainty, let them know that, you're, that, that you appreciate their help. Um, and here's where we're going. Here are the rules. And here's, here's the, 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 you know, to keep in sort of the, the metaphor, here's, here are the sidelines and here's, here's the offsides. And whenever you give them all the rules so they know, and then you say, go. And as long as you stay within this context, we're great. If you want to go outside the context, then we have to have a discussion first to make sure that it's, it's still in, in service of the, of the vision. If not, then, uh, then it's something that they, that they shouldn't do. So it, to me, it's mostly about vision and direction and environment. Those are the things you have to do. Um, once you get through that sort of knot hole of, you know, do you have a real business or yet or not? Is there some predictability to it? There's a lot of stuff in there that I want to break down. Uh, yeah, sure. First of all, you talk about firing yourself. So just to clarify for the listeners, firing yourself is removing yourself from that day to day um, and, and kind of tapping into this vision of the future for your, for your company, for your business, correct? Exactly, exactly. So my next question 
going off of that is for startups, for young entrepreneurs who have to put on multiple hats, who have to do um, essentially everything to keep the business afloat, how can you be that, um, that gritty, hard worker, hustle mentality with this, um, this vision that you're talking about? Because clearly it, mm -hmm. it, it breaks up your, your time and attention and energy um, to do both. So what yeah. would your advice be for young entrepreneurs in, in that boat? Yeah, so if you're a startup versus a scale-up, Right. So the startup scale up in this lifestyle business, those are generally the three businesses, you know, three types of businesses that I see um, and a scale up, a big scale up is, you know, a huge business. that's billions of dollars, but they're continuing to scale. They hope but those are sort of the three. A startup is a very different animal. Uh, a startup uh, is uh, I'm a big fan of Steve Blank. If you're familiar with Steve Blank, who's the godfather of startups, uh, he's a UC Berkeley professor. Um and he's written a bunch of books on the topic. Uh, his definition of a startup is it's a temporary organization in search of a business model. So you're actually not a real business yet. Until you find a business model where you have some predictability and scalability, you're not a real business. You're just sort of groping around trying to figure it out. So my advice to them is always the same thing. Just two things. You only have to focus on two things. Everything I just said, vision, direction, don't worry about them. They're not important. You're not real yet. Um, it is... Find a problem worth solving it, worth solving, and solve it in a way that enough people will pay you enough money to make a real business. That's one, right? Most entrepreneurs, most startup guys don't, don't try to find a problem worth solving. They don't focus on the problem. They focus on their idea. Uh, and your idea is fine if it turns into that. But people don't care about your idea. They don't care what you do. They only care what you do does for them. And that's the problem. So I say fall in love with the problem. Don't fall in love with your idea. The second thing is don't run out of money. Uh, th that's it. Just don't run out of money, especially if you have people working for you. Because uh, that is uh, the hardest thing to come back from. Uh, and most folks feel they have to sort of invest and put money into things. And like, so for instance, if you came to me in your glove business, I would say, don't make any gloves. Um, you know, draw some up, talk about designs and go talk to people who, and say, are you having a problem with the way, you know, whatever gloves are being provided today, right? Um, how are you different? How are you solving? How are you making their lives better? It might be, it might be weight. It might be stickiness. It might be whatever it is um, that they're not getting out of their existing gloves. That's what you want to do. Uh, so the story I typically tell here is, I don't actually know if this is true, but I love it. It's a good story. Um, and I actually met Steve um, Jobs a while ago. Um, but when Steve Jobs was coming back to Apple the second time, um, and, you know, uh, he didn't really know what he was going to do. He just knew he had to save the company. The saving the company first was to, to simplify it. So he cut down somewhere between 19 and 23 product lines to four, focus on the profit. So he could buy himself some time to figure out what the next thing was. The next thing was iTunes and the iPod, right? Um, but he didn't go to people and say, how can I make you a better Walkman? What he said was, why do you have that? What does it do for you? Um, you know, what purpose does it serve? Uh, and then where is it letting you down? And people say, well, you know, I, I love it because I get to pick my own music. Um, I like it that uh, it sounds good. I get to you know, sort of put it in my, in my ears now. Again, you're too young. Before that, there was just a radio. You'd have a radio and you'd switch it, you know, and you have a little tiny radio. That was cool, right? You could hold it up your ear um, or you could plug it in and listen to it yourself. But you, had, you, were, you were dependent on someone else providing you the music where you could do it yourself. And then, and then what they said is where it lets me down is, well, you know, let's say it's a CD player. It's really bulky. 
right? So it's sitting on my, on my belt and it's really bulky. And if I'm running, it skips all the time. And, you know, and I only really like two or three songs in any CD. So I have to have all these CDs that I have to play and I have to switch them out, et cetera. And he said, well, you know, about how many songs do you think you'd want to have um, that are available to you? And, you know, and you get a whole bunch of answers. Um, and he said, so what would be a convenient way for you? You know, what would be the size that you'd want that would work? And he said, you know, if I could just sort of put it in my pocket, my back pocket, whatever. So he didn't then say, okay, no, I know what we're going to do. He went to his design team and said, I want you to build something that puts a thousand songs in someone's pocket. Make that. And that's what they made, right? And that's why people bought it. Now it also had this beautiful, you know, simply amazing design um, of, of an Apple. But he didn't tell, he didn't ask people what they wanted. He, he asked why they hired their CD player, right? Their Walkman. What did they hire? What job did they hire to do for them? And then he figured out how to do the job even better. That's what startup people need to do. Most of them don't do that, which is why I think most of them fail. Now, a number of them should fail anyway, because, you know, they just don't find uh, that opportunity. But mo most of them don't have to fail. Uh, they just fell in love with their idea and they're too busy trying to tell people how smart they are and how great their idea is. And, and, and they'll go to talk to people and they'll say, you know, what do you think of my idea? And people, people are nice, Antonio. They're going to say, oh, your idea is great. I love your idea. It's wonderful. You know, good luck to you. And they say, and then you say, oh, can I have an order for a thousand gloves? Well, you know, we're not ready yet. You know, we've got these other things. We've got to move our inventory out or whatever. They come up with all the, all the reasons to not buy from you, which means that they don't really think your idea is any good. They're just being kind to you. Uh, unfortunately, we like that because we like being told that we're good. Uh, it just sort of helps us. So, so that's sort of what I tell startup entrepreneurs. Yeah, the stuff I talked about earlier, don't worry about it. The vision, you probably have a vision. You can write it down if you want. But until you solve the problem, if you write down your vision and you don't solve the problem we're solving, who cares? Your vision isn't going to come true. So it's focus, on, focus on the here and now and focus on being compassionate to, to people and trying to figure out how to help them make their lives better. What I hear, what I hear you saying is there's a difference between managing your time and managing your focus. There needs to be more of a streamlined focus as a young entrepreneur to identify what needs to be the priority versus what doesn't. Because like you said, I do think that a lot of young entrepreneurs get caught up in um, the intangibles like social media, like marketing, like um, SEO, the blog, the even a podcast or, um, you know, anything that isn't about what you just said. Yep. Anything that has nothing to do with um, trying to figure out what's the problem, how can we solve it, and not going off of our idea, but instead, like you said, going towards what's going to solve the problem for the for the consumer. Exactly. Yeah, it's sort of like I would equate it to like what you do as a goalie, right? I mean, you can be highly athletic, you can be, have great, great reflexes, you can jump really high, etc. But if you're one on one with someone, the most important thing to do is take away his angle. Right. And, and so, so you should know where you are in the net, you should know what's behind you, you should be able to focus in front of you and say, okay, when I'm standing here, you know, I'm covering everything. And you just work on the angle, you will take you will, that's 80% of the problem. Right. You can have super fast hands or whatever or reactions or you can study the player. But if you take away their angle, that's the focus. Then you can focus on the that's sort of the big knob. That's what you should do as an entrepreneur. What's the big knob that you need to focus on? Then you can focus on the smaller knobs later. Um, so that's that's what that's definitely the advice I give. Always, always give. That's great. So you talk about you did also touch on team building and how important mm -hmm. that is. Yeah. And, you know, I think the skill of building a good team is often overlooked. 
So can you please share a bit more about kind of that process and that formula? And you do talk, you do talk about in your work how people get job descriptions wrong. I found that very interesting and compelling. Can you kind of share what you mean by that and explain that? Yeah, so let's start with the larger context. Uh, so uh, when, you get to, when you get to a certain size, uh, teams do almost all the work. Uh, performance is a team sport, as I like to say. Uh, there's a ton of research on this. Um, Marcus Buckingham talks about teams all the time. Amy Emerson talks about teams all the time. Uh, General Stanley McChrystal has written a book called The Team of Teams, and he talks about his work at JSOC and how he completely changed the dynamic of the environment that they were in by focusing on the team and not about the smart individuals at the top, you know, the generals, et cetera. Um, so uh, we focus more on the individual. There, there are three aspects to the human part of business, in my opinion. There's the individual, which we focus a lot of time and energy on, which is important to a certain degree. Um, there is the culture, you know, culture gets a lot of airtime, right? You have to have a really great culture, et cetera. And again, I'm a little controversial. I'm like, culture is great. It attracts good people, but it doesn't keep them. The reason they stay is because they're on a great team, right? Um, I had, I had a, 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 a customer, a client recently, one of the gentlemen came on he just joined the group and I started talking about this and he said, oh, I completely agree. I was at Bose which is uh, you know, um, an audio visual you know, here in Massachusetts, uh, an audio company. And um, he said, yeah, the culture there is really tough. I didn't really like the culture at all, but I was on a great team and I was there for 12 years. So he stayed at a company he didn't really like because he loved the team he was on. Now, how do you build a good team? I think in, your, in order to build a good team, you first have to understand what's the, what's the purpose, what's the function of the team and how do you know that they're that they're actually performing it. What's the what's the outcome? How do you describe that? Similar to the vision of the of the of the leader, you should have a vision for the group, the team, whether it's the marketing team or the sales team or even a team within marketing. You should all have the same idea. How do we contribute to the overall success of the company? And how do we know that we did it? Okay, once we understand that, what are the pieces that we need to make that happen? And what are the kind of people, etc., that should be doing this? Right. So you've got. You've got introverts, you've got extroverts, you've got people who are conscientious, you've got people who are more loose and free, you've got people who are detail-oriented, you've got people who are, you've got all these different types of people. And generally, our traits don't change that much. We, 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 we typically get them genetically from our parents and our grandparents, um, or it's from our upbringing, right? How you're brought up, and especially when you were young, are, are, even though we have a lot of neuroplasticity, um, and we can certainly change it, it's hard to change a trait. You can change skills and knowledge, but traits are hard. Um, so you as a leader want to understand what are the basic traits that, that are amongst my team and what ones do I need? And then you, you have to assemble those people in such a way that makes it work. Um, and, and I know I, I would say this, even if I weren't in new England, but I think Bill Belichick is really good at that, right? He understands how to attract people in a cultural way, but then figure out what they're good at. And he puts them in places where they can do that most often. Right, that's your job as a team leader, get people to use their strengths most often. Now, you'll like this story because you're a soccer player and it's about Lionel Messi. Uh, Lionel Messi is the epitome of this. Um, those of you who don't know, Lionel Messi is, to me, arguably the greatest soccer player to ever have played the game. He's five foot seven um, and, and he's super fast. Uh, and he's a lefty. Now, I don't know if you know this, but he uses his left foot like 80 to 90% of the time. And every defender knows this and they play him to his left foot, yet they still cannot stop him. Why is that? Because he has made his left foot so strong that it doesn't matter. 
um, he can go around them. Um, but when he was young, he, brought, he was brought on, I think he was 12 or 13. He was brought over from Argentina. When he was young, they, Barcelona recruited him and they tried to turn him into a soccer player, you know, which was a well-rounded soccer player, et cetera. And he quit. He, he threatened to quit. He said, I'm leaving at 15. He said, I don't like this. I'm not having any fun, et cetera. And they said, don't quit. Don't quit. Cause they saw something. And they, they said, just two things. He said, okay, if you're going to use your left foot all the time, we're going to make it the best left foot in football. And he worked on his left foot all the time. And then they said, the only other thing we want you to do is be dangerous because soccer is about form and shape. And he broke the mold. I mean, he, he's like Wayne Gretzky. He could see the play before it developed and he would put himself in the best position to be able to take advantage of that, which meant he roamed the field all the time. And that wasn't soccer to them. And then we all know what happened. He's, you know, he's got these one six, you know, balloon d'ors and all this stuff. So he is idiosyncratic. And you have to understand as, as, a, as a team leader, all of your people are idiosyncratic. And your job is to figure out how to make a well-rounded team out of spiky people. And, and that can be done, but it takes effort. And it takes a lot of work ahead of time to figure out all these things. Instead, we focus on the individual skill, the individual, individual, individual job. And then if you've ever seen a job description, it's got 20, 30 bullets on it. You know, you can't even remember half the stuff on these things. Um, so uh, I'm a big fan of just two or three things. Focus on that. I, I like to, if you can fit it on a three by five car, then you probably got it. So that's sort of what I focused on. That's great. And I think also going off of that, there's this, there's this idea that when, one second, let me gather my thoughts here, but essentially what I'm trying to say is when you are given a job description, it's almost like they want to fit you into a box or they're trying to lay out what you're expected to do and how you're expected to do it. But what if those skills that you have aren't really fit for that job description? In other words, you may have a weakness that's someone else's strength or your strength is someone else's weakness. And it sounds like the best leaders know how to identify that quickly and efficiently and then use that to build the team. Yeah. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And I think the best way to, to do that is to let the person figure it out themselves. There's something called flow, which uh, I can never pronounce this guy's name. It's Mahali. Chekin Mihaili, he, he has written a book called Flow, and he's really thought about this whole process. And, you know, it's, it's really big in sports, right? You, you, might be, you might be playing a game where you're just phenomenal and, and you're not thinking, you're just doing. And it's probably one of the best games you ever played. As soon as you start thinking, it actually slows down your reaction time, right? There's this thing called myelin that, that wraps around your neurons, which, which allows you to work faster. And when you stop, when you stop to think, uh, it slows everything down. Um, so uh, th this thing called flow is what you're trying to find with, with individuals. So I love, there's an exercise that Marcus Buckingham has, which is called, uh, it's, it's, it's a little more than he has. Um, uh, it's, his is love and loathe, but I think there are two other things. So I do love, loathe, long, and lust. So what you want to do is you want to have people like get a piece of paper and bring it around with them for a week or so. And whenever they find something that they love, they should write it down. And love is a strength. Right, meaning, meaning it gives you strength. You're probably good at it, but you don't necessarily have to be good at it yet, but you just love it. You just think it's awesome. It's a lot of fun. And time uh, changes for you. It, uh, it's, it slows down, right? So when you're doing it for an hour, it feels like five minutes. Whenever that happens, you write it down. Uh, whenever uh, you have something that's the opposite, when you're doing it for five minutes, it feels like an hour, you're bored, distracted, whatever, you're always putting it off. That's the loathe. 
anything that doesn't fit those, don't worry about it. Just don't put them in. Let's do the extremes first. Um, and then you have long and lust, right? If you've been around for a long time, like I have, I got a bunch of gray hair. There's stuff that I that I long to do that I used to do and I can't, I don't do anymore. Write those things down. And, and lust is something that someone else is doing that you see like, wow, that would be really cool. I think I, I would like to do that. Um, and your job is to, as a team leader is to try to find those things that they love long and lust for and have them do it as often as possible and try to remove the loathe part. Because in, in a team is dynamic, especially, there might be something that you loathe to do that someone else on the other team, on the same team loves to do. But we get tied into this job description. Well, that's not the job. I'm like, well, no, that's, that's not what we're trying to do. We're a team, right? And we're trying to choose to reach this outcome. Forget about the job. As long as we reach the outcome, who cares who does what on the team? As long as it gets done and it gets done well and, and we contribute to the overall success of the company. We've got totally locked in this job description thing which I don't know where it came from. Um, actually, I do know where it came from. It came from a guy called Frederick Winslow Taylor, who created something in the industrial age, which was perfect for the industrial age because it was about a routinized job. But we don't have that anymore. So we have to have a different view of things. But that's 100 years old, and, and we haven't moved away from it very much. Um, it's how we were taught in school. We're taught in school very individually, but that's not how we generally, uh, you know, our education system I don't think is very good for what we need in, in the future, we need to change that as well. So we're stuck in this sort of 1890 to 1930 realm and we got to get out of it. Um, and I think that's where job descriptions come from. So as, as individuals, obviously people come into their workspace with certain individual goals as well. Yeah. Things that they want to uh, achieve as, um, as professionals in their own careers, right? Whether that be yeah you know, maybe for younger people staying at a, their first entry level job for two to three years, and then they, they want to move up, they want to move on. So how do you kind of break down that individualism? And how do you get people who are um, extra individualistic to break that mold and engage in this, in this teamwork and, and engage in this team setting? Because I'm sure that in your experience, you've seen um, how difficult it can be for people to buy-in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Simon Sinek says something which I love, which is, is you got to find people who believe what you believe. If they don't believe what you believe, then trying to turn them into something else is, is really um, futile. Because if, they, if they're just there for themselves, then they probably shouldn't be on the team or at the company. Uh, now, there are times where you've created the situation where they're, they're, they're thinking very individualistically because you haven't created this environment of autonomy and certainty and all these things. Um, so what you want to do as a leader is to make sure that you understand how, uh, uh, what drives each person and try to find things that move them towards doing that more often where they get more joy out of it. Now, the one thing I'll say that, that, that you mentioned, Antonio, is, um, that, uh, you know, they come in and say, well, in two, two to three years, I want to be an entry level position. I'm like, don't, don't come up with an arbitrary thing, figure out what you want to learn. For all the people whose goal it is to start their own business, be a CEO, climb the corporate ladder, if you will, what can they do now as they start out um, to really maximize that possibility? Um, even if they're in an entry-level job, they might not see themselves in for a while, they might not like. Yeah. So I think uh, generally, Stephen Covey was pretty smart. You know, start with the end in mind, right? What do you want, right? What is it that you're looking to um, figure out? And where you want to be, right? And, and that might change, but as of right now, 
Do you want to be a CEO? Do you want to run your own company? Do you want to, do you want to just work for another company? What is it that you want to do? And I would highly recommend that you write all that down, right? And, and write it down as if you've already done it, right? Just write it in a way that, that paint a picture that is so vivid that uh, it feels like it's already done. Then once you've sort of figured that out, then you say, okay, what would I need from this point to get there? And not everything, right? I would say, what's the next thing I, that I need, right? You might need to bring, you might need to learn a skill. You might need to learn a language. You might need to, I don't know, manage people or something like that, right? So, so then you say, okay, how do I get there, right? And so I would start there and then sort of bring your steps through. I'm not a fan of writing out the entire process because there's something called the messy middle and it never goes the way we think. So you spend all this time sort of laying everything out step by step. And it never, ever happens that way. Um, you can have some vague idea or framework of sort of, you know, the big giant leaps that you want to do. That's certainly fine. But I wouldn't lay out every single step. So that's what I would say first is if you're, if you're an entry-level person and you want to do that, um, start with the end in mind. You know, write a vivid vision. Write a vivid picture of what it's going to look like when you've, when you've achieved whatever it is you want to, want to achieve. And then say, okay, what do I do next? What's the next thing I need to do to get me closer to that vision? And once you achieve, once you achieve that... What's the next thing? And then the next thing and the next thing. So that, that would be a re my recommendation to, to anyone. And, and the love, loathe, long, lust thing is a really great uh, thing as well. So you can figure out, because we don't always know what our strengths are because our strengths to us are normal. Um, but others may see it as this wonderful thing. So don't think about it as, as whether you're good at it or not. Think about it in terms of strength, right? What gives you strength? What do you love doing? And then you want to try to find ways to do that as often as possible. The other tip I'll say is if you do that, then go to your boss, if you're an entry-level person and say, hey, you know, these are the things I love doing and, and uh, you know, et cetera. If there's any way that you can get more opportunity to do that, uh, then you will probably be happier, more fulfilled. They'll be happier with your work because I'm sure you'll be highly productive. You'll certainly be highly engaged. Um, so those would be the two things that I recommend is to figure out the end in mind and then figure out what you really love to do. Just do that love, loathe thing. You can just type love, loathe Marcus Buckingham into Google and there's tons of sheets you can download and they give you instructions. There's stuff on my website there. I do it as well. It's also my book, in my book, if you want to get off my book. That's great. And I think, you know, and if you were to say that to your boss, I think that shows one of two things. One, you're very um, self-reflective and you understand your strengths, but also you, you're very proactive and you're, you're looking to maximize your ability in that job. So that's a very good, um, you know, impression to make on, on your boss in that scenario. Agreed. So you agreed. talk a lot some, about some, some bosses might not like that, Antonio. Of course, yeah, of course, and that's a that's a you know that's a possibility. But that's I good think, to know, though, right? You you might be yeah. in the wrong you might be on the wrong team. You might be in the wrong company. Right. It's good to know early on. Yeah, you'd rather take that you'd rather take that leap and and, and do that than than not. Um, exactly. Yeah. And you know, you talk about doing things as often as possible. And I think a lot of that has to do with habit, right? What we do every day over time creates that that trend that upward trend that that yep. is necessary over time to create that success um, and that growth so going off of that then what are the three most important things you do daily could be in the morning what's your morning routine what do you do on a daily basis to kind of lock in that 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 success yeah so for me um it, you know i do things uh, i actually don't have a morning routine because my days aren't always the same, but I do plan out the, the night before um, or ahead of time what I want to do the next day. 
and mostly it's about learning for me because um, my, my strategy to be successful in what I do is two words, which is be exceptional. I want to be an exceptional provider to my clients. And to me, to be exceptional, I have to constantly fill myself up with um, you know, the science, the research, um, the, the good stories that I can tell to illustrate what I'm trying to teach them and get better at teaching uh, and get better at writing and get better at delivering information. So I spend a lot of time doing that. I'm, I'm constantly, it's called sharpening the saw, right? Um, and I'm doing that on a regular basis. Uh, so that's sort of what I do. The other is um, uh, health. Uh, I work out six to seven times a week. Uh, I don't always work out the same time every day because again, my day isn't always the same, but like when I, when I get off here with you, I have a quick call and then I'm going to jump in the car and go to the gym. And then I have another call at two. Uh, 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 two. Actually, I have a, a guitar lesson at two, right? So I'm, I'm learning skills That's uh, great. I enjoy. Um, so, so those are the things that I do. Um, and and th- they should be different for everyone, right? Whatever it is that, that you think um, works for you. Some people love a routine. They, they get up at five, they, they work out, then they, then they eat, and then they go to work. I mean, that, if that works for you, great. It, I found that doesn't work for me. Uh, so I do something else. Uh, right. So that's sort of how I manage my, my time in my day, right? As, as I fill myself up, it's mostly about mind, body, and spirit, right? Always trying to, to do something mind, body, and spirit all the time. I agree. I agree. So going off of that, then how do you create the same success in your personal life that you do in your business life? Uh, so I do very similar things. Um, so for, so I'm a dad and, uh, uh, and uh, I, I used to be a husband. I'm, I'm no longer a husband. Uh, so I'm looking for the next, the next person. Um, but I always look at, you know, how can I be a better one of those, right? So I asked my daughter, my daughter's 21. I've asked her, I think three or four times in her life, how can I be a better dad, right? Um, and when I, when I was first becoming a dad, before she was born, I did the same thing. You know, I, I ate my own dog food, Antonio. You know, I, I asked myself, how would I describe if I did a really great job at being a dad? You know, how would I know that I did it? And I boiled it down to, I would want to have my daughter, I only have one child. Um, I would want my daughter to, to, not, to never need me, but to always want to be around me. Um, and I worked from very early on, you know, from she was three, four, five, to having her be her own person and encouraging her to have her own thoughts and to bring her own, uh, to uh, her own brain to the party. You know, I didn't, I very rarely told my daughter what to do. Um, and even if she wanted the answer, I, I wouldn't give it to her. She, she really didn't like that every now and again. <laughs> she just wanted the answer. Um, uh, but now, you know, it's funny. I got, a, I got a card from her on Father's Day this year and it said the nicest thing, which basically said that, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that you're my dad because, you know, I know that you believe in me. I know that you know that I'm capable and I know that, you know, that, that I can figure things out. And that's always what I wanted. Right. And we still love to hang around each other. Right. We, we, we have a great time when we're together. So, so far, so good on, on that plan. So that's sort of how I, I work my personal life as well. I, and that's a good example of how I try to do that. That's great. And, and you say be exceptional. And there's nothing more exceptional than creating that father-daughter relationship, but more than that, it's what you leave to her that she will pass on to her, to her kids. And that's why I think legacy is so important because you're not only impacting her life, but she's going to impact people in her life and her children and so forth. So going off this idea of legacy, you know, you pivoted, right? You were in one industry and you pivoted to another. And, you know, that could have been for multiple reasons, 
but at the end of the day, what do you want your legacy to be as a coach or as a teacher? And, sure. and also going off of that, you, you said at the beginning of the show, I don't know if people caught this, but you said you're more of a teacher versus a coach, yeah. although coach is your description. So what does the difference mean to you, coach versus a teacher? And yeah, so um, so legacy and then coach and teacher. Uh, so we'll do coach and teacher first, and then we'll do legacy. And by the way, awesome segue, Antonio, for my last, my, my last um, answer. Um, so uh, a coach generally tries to get the best version of the person they're working with. Um, and, and the, or be it an individual or a team. And I definitely do that. And that's part of my role. Um, but I'm more about teaching them a growth framework so they can do things themselves, right? And teacher is a word that most people understand. I actually like the word cultivator better than teacher. I'm sort of a gardener, right? Is, is I'm trying to create the environment and, and the framework so they can, they can grow their own stuff. I don't tell them what to do. I ask a ton of questions. And I challenge them on a regular basis um, uh, so, they, so they can understand how to fill in the framework with their own stuff. So I'm, I'm coming with this, you know, this sort of um, this scaffolding, if you will, and I'm helping them build their own, their own house. But I'm not building it for them. I'm not telling them where to put the kitchen. I'm not telling them what to do, you know, what nails to use or whatever. They're doing that. So that's sort of what I mean by teacher versus coach. And, and I definitely do both. I'm, I'm also a consultant at times, right? Once in a while, I'll, I'll say, you know, hey, this has been my experience. And, you know, what about this? And I'll, I'll give them something. It's not necessarily an answer, but I'll give them something that could turn into an answer. Uh, but I, I try to uh, stay mostly on the, on the teacher side. Um, uh, and uh, lastly, on the legacy, yeah, my, I, I, I know what my legacy is. Uh, it is to bend the curve. Um, According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Small Business Administration, I think um, the uh, a, a company that starts has a five a 50-50 chance of lasting five years, uh, and then a it has a sixteen percent chance of lasting twenty five, and and the, the data goes down from there. It is not a good curve. Um, now, some people choose to go out of business, either be bought or, or, or retire or whatever, and that's certainly fine. That's part of the numbers. But most of the numbers are, are not voluntary uh, cho choosing to go, to go out of business. Um, now, that's just the ones that go out of business. There's a large, there is a large percentage of folks that survive but are not thriving. They're struggling. And there are very few that thrive. I want to try to change that. I want to try to tell people that, you know what, it's not as hard as you think it is. Most of the stuff that you've been taught is wrong or partially wrong. And most of the things that you're doing as a leader are, are not completely right. And if you just do a few things really, really well, you have a much better chance of being successful than if you try to do what most people are taught, which is to chase revenue. Um, you make decisions that are, are in sort of threat mode all the time, and you often regret them later on. Uh, I have this thing where uh, in my bio, it says, you know, we do these things wrong. We do, we do people wrong. We do meetings wrong. We do innovation wrong. We do strategy wrong. We do execution wrong. We do all these things wrong. And we don't do them completely wrong. We just do them wrong enough that as time goes by, this is my theory, that it just gets heavier and heavier and harder and harder to run a business. And most people hit a wall at some point. Um, and that's my job. My job, I think, is to try to tell people that stop doing that, right, is Create the atmosphere. Don't try to do, do the more thinking. Think about the future. Fire yourself from the day to day. Um, think about team as your main thing. And then also running your business as a system. And then lastly, use cash as your primary financial growth metric, which are the three main essences of my book, which really all I'm doing 
I'm eating my own dog food there as well as I'm applying the Pareto principle, which is the 80, 20 rule to my book, which is, you know, I don't teach everything I know in my book. I only teach the stuff that I think is the most impactful. Same thing as a leader is, is 80 or 90% of your um, profit and cash comes from 10 to 20% of your customers. That means that your best customers, your core customers are 16 times more valuable than your regular customer. Find one more of those as opposed to 16 more of the other, which is much, much harder. Um, so that's sort of what I focus on. That's what I want to do. That's what my legacy wants to be. I want people to say, yeah, Bill made my life easier. He made it so my, I can live my life. I don't have to spend all my time at work. Um, I've created this environment where other people are running the company and I'm you know, making those big meaty decisions that make a big difference in the long run. But in the short run, I'm not really doing much, uh, at least to run the company. Awesome. And this next question is a little bit about you know, your biggest failure in the last year. And I just wanna know why you think that happened. And you, I just want you to be as honest as possible in terms of you know, why, why do you think that failure occurred and, and what did you learn from it? And are we doing professional, personal, do you care? Anything you want, could be professional, can be personal. Yeah, um, well, I mean, to be honest with you, uh, it's probably gonna go a little more personal than you want. So I'm getting divorced. Um, so I would consider that a failure, right? That's probably one of the biggest failures um, I've had, especially in my personal life, is I never expected to get divorced. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I think in any relationship, there's not one person or one thing that generally has it be a failure. It's pretty rare. Uh, so I can't point to one thing. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I don't think I uh, was as good a husband as I could have been. Uh, I don't know that we would have made it anyway, um, but I certainly contributed to that. Uh, and I'm taking that to my next relationship, right? I'm, I'm much more open. I share my feelings a lot more than I used to. Um, I share a lot more information than I used to. I used to sort of be reticent and, and, and quiet and closed. And um, uh, I think having a daughter also helped a lot. So I'm much more sort of emotional and showing my emotion than I used to be. So that, that would be my biggest failure. And, and hopefully I've learned from it. We'll, we'll see, I, you know, I haven't really found that next person yet. So uh, who knows? Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, I appreciate that honesty. And I think, you know, what, what I've learned from you in the past hour is that it's never too late to not only change careers, but to change how you want to live your day-to-day -day life. It's not, it doesn't matter if it's in your job, in your profession, or in your personal life, through a divorce, whatever the case is, you always have that opportunity, no matter your age, to pursue the person that you want to be, pursue that best self. And it sounds like you've been able to do that in yeah. this in this segment of your life where you pivoted your job, but not you also, you also sounds like you pivoted other parts of your life that are like contributing to your success in terms of working out, you know, like you said earlier, the mind, body, spirit. I think that's yeah. something that gets overlooked a lot. So thank it you does. for thank you for sharing that with our audience. I think there's a lot that they could have picked up on that. I hope they did. And sure. um, yeah, I certainly learned a lot and and yeah, I look forward to even consulting you in the future about Gloveless and, and our business and uh, just to have a chat and catch up. But that was Bill Flynn, everyone. Thank you so much for your time. Um, helping leaders take the guesswork out of growth. I love that line. And um, 
you really you really taught me a lot and you really taught our audience a lot so i thank you thank you very much for your time and where can people get your book i was gonna bring that up sure well again thank you for having me on antonio it was it was fun i enjoyed it um uh and i'm glad you're you're putting this stuff out for your for your uh scholar athletes that are out there um the best way to reach me is through my website which is catalystgrowthadvisors.com you can download my book for free. I'm more about the message than the money. If you want to buy it, you can go to Amazon or Audible and, and download it from there as well. I get like four or five bucks every time you do that. So that's cool. Um, Maggie, you know, pay for Maggie's schooling. Uh, and uh, my phone number's on there. All the articles, I write uh, two articles a month. I've, there are about 130, 140 on there. They're really short articles, especially the last hundred or so that hopefully are useful and, and impactful to you. Um, again, to help bend that curve. So uh, again, thanks for having me on. This is The Glovis Show. 